The Carnegie Corporation was established in 1911 to promote the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding. And no one embodies that better than Kim Liu, the $3.5 billion foundation's chief investment officer. She does it not only with a variety of innovative strategies and keeping a close watch on various asset classes, such as emerging markets, but through team building, mentoring, and a swath of culture and diversity. A little flair helps too. I'm Chris Butera, and today on the Chief Investment Officer Podcast, Lou is going to talk a little bit about her work and dedication to getting it right in not just the investment world, but at home as well. Before we begin, we'd like to give our listeners a heads up on our CIO Summit, which will gather the top chief from across the institutional investor landscape at the Harvard Club on May 16th and 17th for panels and discussions on innovative new strategies and what's keeping them up at night. For more details on how to register, as well as check out some other great content, visit AICIO.com. Emerging markets are a tricky thing, and with the trade implications between President Trump and Xi Jinping, asset owners are starting to look at opportunities other than China. Lou's going to tell us what attracts her and her team to an emerging market, and what alternatives to China they're currently seeing. Just in general, when we think about emerging markets, we're looking for markets where we think that the growth prospects are higher and where we think that there's inefficiencies and the ability for us to create a better return. There's one, both greater opportunity there and there's greater dispersion. So finding good managers makes a difference versus the average market. So generally the market or the benchmark is not that attractive a return because of all the volatility, but we're looking for the best managers. That's why China has been so attractive. It's a big market becoming more diverse because the benchmark used to be mostly SOEs and then became financial services. And now it's increasingly becoming a more diverse benchmark. And so the market's becoming more diverse. And so that has made China an attractive place to play. Similarly, India has been a really attractive play because it does have a lot of diversity in the market and had great growth prospects. It's actually done a lot better than China in recent years. So when we think about other markets, we think about the fact that Africa could be a tremendous market. It has been in our portfolio for a while. It could continue to be a tremendous market if they can deal with some of their issues, which include the fact that they need to build regional markets because no one country is big enough to support, to have a sufficient demand or sufficient economy for it to be good to invest in. But if they could build regional markets, much like the Eurozone is a regional market, then it could be a hugely viable market for people to want to invest in. Rising middle class, lots of young people, lots of young workers. Africa could be a region that could be a great opportunity for future investment and increasingly talented managers there who could differentiate and determine value. Lots of strengthening governments and strengthening economies over time. We'll start to see that. So that could be clearly a good place for us to look and we spend a lot of time looking there. I think Southeast Asia also, they're going to benefit greatly as China moves away from basic manufacturing, sort of lower end economy stuff that leaves room for other parts of Southeast Asia to step in and play the role that they used to play and they will grow over time. Any place where we see there's growth and entrepreneurship 
and there is strong governments or strong strengthening rules of law and basic understanding of how to play in those markets, they become more attractive. We're definitely believers in the emerging markets and we'll continue to look at them. One area Lou mentioned was Africa, which the Carnegie Corporation has been invested in since before her time. However, it is an area where the foundation was very early and one where they not only continue to invest, but also run a higher education program to help carry on the mission of the legendary philanthropist to which the organization lends its name. Carnegie made its first investment in Africa in either 99 or 2000. So we've almost 20 years of investing in Africa. For the first 10 years, I would argue that it was a beta play. There was just not a lot of people who invested there. There was a retail market just investing in general created returns. It's much more of a manager selector market now. You really have to have skilled, talented managers in that region in order to make money because some will do well and some won't. You have to have somebody who has the ability to differentiate. There's lots of opportunity there and we'll continue to look. We're probably more discriminant now because it is a manager selector market than when it was just a beta play. It's not so much anymore. I've worked at places where, because they had a program area, they invested. We have a program called Higher Education and Research in Africa, where they're trying to strengthen higher ed institutions in Africa, which I think absolutely plays into why it's a good market to us to invest in as investors. Because strengthening the higher education system means that you have more talent in the country. You're likely to have greater entrepreneurship. You're likely to have educated people stay within these countries, within the continent, that will lead to better run companies, strengthened institutions. There is a strong play between our program side and how we think about investments, but that's a long-term investment they're making, and it'll take some time for it to materialize. We're playing a role in strengthening countries and strengthening economies by building an infrastructure of strong higher ed institutions. In addition to emerging markets, private markets also work well for Lou and her team. Due to their long-term mindset, they can handle a little volatility. Asset classes that allow us to leverage our long-term nature of our portfolio, we are a perpetual organization that has made a concerted effort to control fixed costs so we can handle volatility more than some other institutions can. Institutions such as pension funds that have to pay out pensions the same amount or growing amount every year. Universities who have to pay professors and have fixed costs are different than foundations. Our payout is 5% every year, but it's 5% of what we have. It will go down if the organization goes down. Arguably, we can handle a little bit more volatility than others. We're able to trade off volatility for returns in many respects. But for sure, it's because we can look long-term. And so we can look at what happens over 10 years, not what happens over two years or what happens over one year. Because of that, emerging markets are always a good play for us. If you believe over the long-term, which we do, that these economies are faster growing and have more inefficiency, so a real ability to differentiate as active managers, we benefit from participating there. We also absolutely, for the same reasons, like venture, because venture obviously has many of the same dynamics. It's, it's arguably volatile, but over the long term has the potential to really produce enhanced returns if you select managers appropriately. 
private markets in general because they're illiquid and you have the ability to wait for higher returns as opposed to needing to have a shorter time frame. That's our preference. The Yale model didn't happen by accident. It's because it's a real opportunity for you to leverage. We can take volatility. To complete the mission, one must also have a shared culture across their team. This is one of the most important elements of not just becoming a master investor, but of every workplace. Lou shares how she's been able to get it right with her team of seven and how it helps her further achieve the goals Carnegie pursued. In order to get it right, you have to have a shared culture or a shared strategy or a shared understanding of priorities. Otherwise, having and being able to embrace diversity is a problem. Diversity is extremely important to me. When I was constructing our team internally, I thought a lot about that. I wanted to have a team with diverse perspectives and different lived experience, but a shared understanding of how to manage portfolio. Everyone on the team had to believe in the right way to manage assets was to have a diverse portfolio that leveraged out the long-term nature that we were all believed that it was important for us to be manager selectors and important to look for inefficient markets, but maybe came at it from different perspectives. They came from different asset classes. They came from different types of institutions. They came from different parts of the country. Some people had strong venture backgrounds and understanding of technology and maybe healthcare and others had an emerging markets background. So others had a real estate background. Everyone came with a different perspective and different metrics they used to determine success. But like I said, we all had agree on what our style of investing was gonna be. You couldn't have one person believe that that was the way to do it and then somebody else believe that, no, it's all about asset allocation. It's all about macro decision-making. Those two things can't exist in the same organization because how you make money in one is not the same as how you make money in the other. And you do have to have a consistency of philosophy. In order to embrace diversity, you do have to have a shared understanding. And I think that's what we have here. And I think it has served us really well. I think that the way we manage money here at Carnegie has allowed us to leverage the differences on our team and really see things that maybe others were not comfortable embracing because they didn't have anybody on the team who had expertise in that area. And we have somebody who has seen it, who has experienced it, lived in that market. Oh, I know people. I have relationships that we can help to do diligence. Maybe perhaps we're a little weary about going into a place like Africa because how am I going to do diligence to this manager? So we have people who have worked in a lot of different places and have relationships in different places. And so we can do due diligence in markets that maybe others might find a little bit more challenging. I think that's why it's important, especially in the way we manage money. We have to be able to find opportunities where the herd is not, which means you gotta have people from a lot of different areas because you just don't know where the opportunity is gonna be at any given year. And so that's been important to us. We also manage the team in such a way that every opportunity is brought to the whole team. So everyone on the team gets to weigh in on every investment. And that's made a difference too. So it's not like my real estate person only looks at real estate. The real estate person also looks at absolute return, comments on venture. We'll talk about emerging markets. We'll talk about developed markets equities. We'll even have an opinion on fixed income because they know something about rates and what's going on because that's an important thing to them. So they'll maybe have a comment about this is what I'm seeing in the subprime market that maybe you should think about as you think about your fixed income strategy. 
that's allowed us to be really successful. But like I said, you do have to have a common foundation. And I think that we manage that by constantly reminding ourselves of what our priorities are and how we think about investing and making sure people stay focused on that, the goals being the same and the way we do it being the same. Lou is also a dedicated team builder who pushes her colleagues to become the best financial professionals possible. Thanks to her meticulous efforts, she knows all of her members will be great CIOs one day. One of the messages she stresses is that everyone speak up as soon as they see a risk because they won't get a second chance. One of the things that I think is really important about the fact that everyone on a team weighs in on every investment, a core tenet that I translate into the team culture is we are in the business of taking risk. If we don't take risk, we're never going to hit the return hurdle that we need in order to maintain purchasing power and net of spending. And I think oftentimes people become risk adverse, partially because you don't want to be the one that causes the problem in the portfolio or people get sort of insular in the way they manage their portfolio. They're only comfortable with their portfolio. So that's the only thing they want to invest in. And that might not be the best thing for right now. So because we've created an environment where everyone hears about everything and everybody participates in all the decision makings, I say to people, it's okay if occasionally we get it wrong. It's not okay if the thing that makes the investment go wrong be something that we did not identify. That means because everyone's job on the team is to be a devil's advocate for every investment, if it goes wrong, everyone's responsible for it going wrong because we all had a responsibility to play devil's advocate and raise risk. So if a risk happened and it didn't get raised, everybody was responsible for that. Maybe the person who manages that asset class is responsible for sourcing and to figuring out why that is a good investment and why it should be in the portfolio. Everybody else is responsible for making sure that we know the risk we're taking. And so if it goes wrong, no one can point fingers because we're all responsible for that. It's a part of our team that has worked really well is that people don't say, oh, that person's responsible for that thing going wrong. Because I say the last thing I ever want to hear from somebody is say, oh, I thought that could happen because I saw before that happened. If that happens, then you should get fired because if there was a risk and you knew about it and you didn't raise it, you've not done your job. So everybody has incentive to bring up risks when they see them. Because everybody has responsibility to do that, they do it and there's less sensitivity. No one feels like they're being picked on when somebody finds something wrong with their investment or they shouldn't because that means that you're less likely to get tripped up down the road and we all benefit if we all succeed. I do think that's an important part of how we think about it and how we manage it and it's done well. In a time where lower returns are becoming expected, it's tough to innovate. Lou reveals what she saw in credit markets and how she was able to execute that strategy. I think it's definitely becoming more challenging to find opportunities now that we're late in the cycle. That was one of the concerns that we have. A lot of the things that we look to is that we see growth in markets that others don't. But when you're late in the cycle, you start to wonder whether or not there is growth in these different markets. And for sure, if the U.S. sort of rolls over it, it'll have echoing effects to other economies because there's so many that are tied to the United States. We've decided that in this environment, what we're going to look for is absolute return strategies, strategies that we think have a enhanced absolute return relative to the risk we're taking 
in any environment. So something that's uncorrelated to the equity markets. And what we're finding is that oftentimes those opportunities are small, they're niche And that's why we've been able to identify them where others haven't been able to play because they're just too small for the other sources of capital. We found some really interesting credit strategies that in order to invest in them, they're fairly labor intensive, but they require somebody who has expertise in this small niche part of the credit markets, but they're raising a hundred million size funds, which means big players can't play there. It takes an institution that's able to make a $10 million investment or a $15 million investment, not an institution that can make a $100 million investment or a $200 million investment because that size capital would just overwhelm the market and make the opportunity evaporate. These are markets that are about scarcity of capital. Most of them have come through relationships, Carnegie being known as a place that will look at things that others may not look to. So people will come and say, I know you look at things that are unusual and I hear that you're willing to do a small fund size. And then we go and we do the work. It really wouldn't make sense for some investors because if you can't put a lot of money to work and you don't know that there's the opportunity to put more money to work over time, you won't do it, but we will. Part of a CIO's job is growing your network and making your presence known across the institutional landscape. Lou is no slouch and sits on a number of boards such as the Stevens Cooperative School and the Mutual Fund Board of Ariel Investments. There's also only a handful of women at the pinnacle of the investment world, making her not only a champion investor and top talent constructor, but an elite role model as well. There's a little bit of me thinking about all of the different not-for-profits that I work with and all of the different organizations I'm willing to give my time to, both as work and as hobbies. Quite frankly, I feel like it's a responsibility. I think there's a lot of people over the course of my career that have helped me. And so I feel a responsibility to help other people. I also think there's an underrepresentation of women and people of color in this industry. So people need to see that I exist. And so I make sure that I say yes to things where I think that it's important for people to know that there is a black woman who is a CIO out there. I, there are not that many of us. I do. I say yes to a lot of speaking engagements. I say yes to a lot of boards and I say yes to a lot of different types of organizations because I think I have to, to make room for the next person to be asked to participate. And it takes up a lot of time, but I get a lot out of it. I understand businesses better sometimes because of it. It expands my network because there are other people on these boards and there's other people at these conferences that help me in my job. It's a little bit selfish and it's a little bit of feeling like I need to give back to this industry and to other industries. Kim's schedule is long and taxing. So when she's not working, she tries to spend as much time with her family as possible. Traveling with them is her favorite thing to do. And she encourages visiting a new country every chance they get. One of the things that is great about this job and also one of the things that's a problem about this job is that I could be working 24 hours a day because if you're an intellectually curious person, this job touches everything. It's economic, it's culture. You can go into sociology and anthropology, just everything you can imagine. 
can influence how you think about investments. And so if you wanted to work all the time, you could. So you have to not, right? And you have to make sure to find time to decompress. But it does take a lot of hours. And so a lot of my time that I'm not working is spent with my kids. When I'm not with my children, I have a horrible habit of wasting time watching an inordinate amount of television. So I watch a lot of TV. If you ask me what my passion is, I'd say travel. I travel a lot, not just for work, but personally with my family. When I was growing up, I did not travel at all. And so I was fascinated by it. So I travel a lot now. I try to make sure we go on a couple of international trips a year, new places. We try to go off the beaten track sometimes and sometimes not, but that's the thing I love the most. I love to go to a new place I've never been before and so try to see how much I can immerse myself in that place for just a little bit of time before we move on. I am unfortunately like my creature comforts, so I maybe don't immerse myself as much as I would like to. My husband would like to be backpacking and I am not. I am past the backpacking and hostile stage of my life, but I do like going to new places. And we as a family spend a lot of time researching the next place we're going to go and finding out what we want to learn when we get there. It's probably my favorite thing to do. Probably my favorite, favorite city. And I've gone twice with my kids is South Africa both because I think it's physically beautiful. I think the architecture is amazing. You get natural beauty. The food is delicious. The people are friendly. I'm not saying that every part of it is safe, but lots of it is just, you go there and people want you to have a good time. <laughs> and they, they wanna make sure that you have a good experience in their country. And there's just a lot of different things to see. So it's probably my favorite place to visit. But I love every place. I love Brazil. Brazil is an amazing place to visit. I loved Costa Rica. That's amazing. I don't think there's any place that I've been to that I thought, I don't really like this place. Because if you go at it with, I'm coming here to learn something new, and I'm going to be respectful of this place, then people want to tell you about their country and want to show you the best of who they are. And so you get to see that. In addition to exploring places such as South Africa and Brazil, Lou, like most of us, also winds down by watching TV. While some shows can be channel surfed in the middle of observing the markets, there's one bloody good drama that's got the Carnegie CIO hooked from start to fire-breathing finish. I am a huge Game of Thrones fan. I love it. After watching the first three seasons, I read all the books, which just tells you how much I love the Game of Thrones. I've read them all. And quite frankly, there's just too many scenes that I was amazed by for me to pick the one. I think I like different scenes for different reasons. I think what I like about the series is that they've, they've done away with predictability. Anybody in that series could die. <laughs> there are no sacred cows, right? It, and I think that if you really pay attention to what it takes to succeed in the Game of Thrones, it is about creating alliances and having diverse perspectives in the conversation. Some of the most interesting scenes are people from very different places coming together to solve a problem. If it's not the storyline that's so much interesting to you, cinematography is amazing. I mean, I have not seen a scene more interesting than the Battle of the Bastards or even the Red Wedding. They're amazing scenes. Just the filming of them are amazing. I think that it is a series where you absolutely understand why people hate it. There's tons of things about it that are just distasteful. The way they treat women in the series, 
fluctuates from being misogynistic to the, okay, so now they're going to be powerful. The way they treat people and the way they punish people is just uncomfortable sometimes. But I think it's sort of a mirror into society, right? Maybe an extreme version of it, but it speaks to things that are going on. I like the complexity of it. It is a show that you cannot casually watch. You sort of have to immerse yourself in it. I spend a lot of time casually watching TV while I do other things. And so this is a show that I've had to sit down and pay attention to. So I love it. Thanks for stopping by and listening to another episode of the Chief Investment Officer podcast. We'd like to thank and appreciate Kim Liu for taking the time out of her day to tell us about her work, values, and adventures outside and inside the corner office. If you want to register for our May 16th through 17th CIO Summit, listen to more podcasts, or discover some of our other sophisticated content, head on over to AICIO.com. I'm Chris Butera. You stay classy now.